0: Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of Cult Hackers. It's Stephen here. Today I speak with Hayward Gatch, an anarchist who studied with Jehovah's Witnesses. It's a bit of a different episode from normal, but perhaps harks back to our previous incarnation, What Should I Think About? So we could call this episode, What Should I Think About Anarchism? We discussed the context of the conversation at the beginning of the show, so I won't repeat it here. And we didn't agree on everything, but it was a sort of conversation that I really enjoy, and demonstrates that it's possible to explore complex topics in a respectful and interesting way. I spoke to Hayward as he was sitting in his truck, so you can probably hear the wildlife in the background. We also had a few moments where we lost signal, but I don't think we lost much of what he had to say. Oh, by the way, before we start, we have a special episode coming up on Saturday the 6th of May, which is Coronation Day in the UK. And the question we're going to be asking is, is the royal family a cult? Where Celine and I discuss claims made by a certain member of the British royal family that it is a death cult. So don't forget to check that episode out. Celine wasn't available for this chat, so it's just me and Haywood. so let's get into it. Okay, so today uh, we've got a, a very interesting guest. So Hayward Gatch is with us today, or with me today. And this stems from Hayward sort of commenting on one of our previous podcasts. So first of all, I want to say welcome, Hayward. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thrilled to be here. Thank you for your time.
0: you absolutely welcome. So we did a couple of episodes about authority. And uh, the, on the first episode, we were thinking about authority mostly around those people that kind of exercise authority over us, I suppose, in a sort of, uh, power, uh, relationship, uh, governments, um, police enforcement and all that sort of thing. And so we had a conversation around that Celine and myself. Um, and we, we were a bit flippant really with our, um, conversation around, we just briefly mentioned anarchism or anarchy and, uh, you kind of uh, responded to that saying very politely, but, you know, have you ever actually spoken to an anarchist, which was a great question. And we, we sort of discussed it a little bit on the next one, but um, we thought it'd be great to get you on to give us a bit of thoughts around that. Plus you mentioned that you would stood with Jehovah's Witnesses whilst you were a, I think in your words, a dedicated anarchist. So uh, a very interesting perspective. So yeah, I don't know, not- mate, Maybe uh, we could start with you telling us what your definition is of anarchy or anarchism and, um, yeah. and what is that, maybe.
1: Yeah, so the great thing to sort of set this conversation when speaking about anarchism as an ideology is to recognize it is a family of ideologies. It's not one specific thing. Um, you know, and the more you look into it, you'll notice there are lots of different uh, emphasis on different uh, angles of it. The uniting factor is the shared principle of either a rejection or a deep skepticism of hierarchy itself as perhaps the root of domination and by extension, other problems we have in our society today. So many anarchists will say, I don't like uh, this particular governmental authority we live underneath, and that. Some people will say, okay, I'm going to take that to the extent of saying I don't like organization whatsoever, but that's actually a minority position within uh, broader anarchist thought. Okay, yeah. It's not a re- rejection of organization, it's a rejection of sort of a top-down model of organization. And naturally, there are benefits to a top-down organization just as there are benefits to a horizontal organization. And whichever one you choose as your personal uh, guiding ideology is based on your priorities. So for me, personally, I don't really think it's worth it to, of, of a trade-off to have a massive top-down bureaucratic structure because, yeah, I get, you know, buses and trains that run on time, but maybe there are other trade-offs that don't work for me. And so what attracted me to anarchism was the idea of saying, you don't have to live this way. The system that we live under now got to where it is by exterminating most other systems, often at the the point of a bayonet. So, you know, what, where do we take that? Do we say, can we recreate something like this, or can we create something entirely new, but based on that shared understanding of skepticism towards structures of authority? What can we do for that? And so for every person, that's a different question. That's kind of what makes the ideology so flexible, and also maybe why it's never had much... um, (laughs) much serious grip on the global world you know it's it's really hard and and that's the thing it's very easy to have a massive system with a top-down bureaucratic structure it's much harder to make that happen on a broader scale but that's sort of the idea your goal isn't necessarily to have it on a broader scale you know anarchism is a very local ideology because that's you know this is your group of people and you can organize a pretty functional society on a smaller scale. And maybe that's all you want. You know, within modern society, we have this idea of growth for the sake of growth and everything has to be large. Everything needs to be big, especially like in America, we love everything has to be big. (laughs) And so, you know, we have this sort of um, what I see as a, a failure of imagination in terms of like we can, live in other ways if we're allowed to. Uh, And that's the tricky thing. And that's what sort of puts us very often against powers of authority and puts us in sometimes a very militant posture against that authority is we do not have the ability to live in the ways that we like without coming under very intense state repression. You know, I live with permanent injuries from being around those times of state repression. So that for me is a very real and physical thing. It's not just an abstract concept. You know, I'm down to about 40% of my hearing and I have all sorts of, uh, you know, permanent nightmares from all of those types of fighting and violence, seeing what governmental structures will do to you if you go too far outside of their approved logic. So for me, it's pretty hard to feel comfortable Uh, going back into a structure of obedience, when I've seen how much or how much of an iron fist lays beneath that velvet glove of all of those promises of modern society, as it exists, at least, you know, I'm not saying modern society in terms of, you know, no technology, the modern society, we know, it gives us a lot of promises, but it demands a lot in return. And maybe for you or for anyone, that trade off is worth it. And that's sort of the beauty of an anarchist approach to things is saying, "Yeah, if that works for you, you can go do that." And just as much as you have the right to go live as you please, I expect the same in return. That's where things tend to get tricky, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a really interesting. You've raised a lot of um, really interesting points there. Um, I, I'm 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 trying to debate with myself whether we go down some of those those avenues or or first maybe first though because I I do want to come back to some of that stuff. It's really interesting. Um, I'm. I think our listeners will be curious about the, the the reason then why you started studying with Jehovah's Witnesses and how that kind of fit into your thinking mm-hmm. around anarchy and anarchism. Um, we can have a, perhaps a bit of a chat about that and then get onto some yeah. of the more sort of political things, maybe.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know that that's. I. It wasn't a place that I expected myself to be in, and certainly many of uh my friends around me were uh equally confused um the the easy way into it was um uh, uh, my wife's cousin was was in the witnesses at the time uh and you know i have certain affinities with certain christian teachings you know love thy neighbor that sort of thing you know that fits very well within the sort of uh mutual respect that is um embodied by my perspectives on anarchism you know that sort of stuff makes sense to me and so I've, I've rarely identified as a Christian, but I've been identified often as a Christ fan, you could say, um, yeah. you know, those okay. stories that I grew up with, were like, oh, okay, these things sort of make sense to mm-hmm. me. And rather than just have that as something that I uh, say, it seemed like something to actually enact. And I'm, I'm under no illusions that any christ figure in history would identify as an anarchist but there's a certain uh certain affinity with some of those points that led me to be curious and Mm -hmm. i like to think i'm a really open-minded person you know i am extremely against any sort of uh uh, anti-religious bigotry of you know different sects getting oppressed for one reason or another Mm -hmm. so you know i'm very open-minded. So yeah, absolutely. Let's talk to these people. Um, naturally there was a a lot of love bombing happening. And like, I really enjoy that. And as a person that aspires to have some kind of a community, uh, to live within that is very appealing, you know, on a very Mm -hmm. human level, that, that, that connection that is being perhaps simulated, but being enacted was, was very enticing. Um, but specifically what made me very interested with the witnesses is, the, their overlap on things like the rejection of nationalism. So, you know, I've often, you know, being sort of in on the edge of, uh, of a Christian worldview saying, you know, well, I think nationalism kind of seems like a, a sort of idolatry. You know, we have this, this fanatic belief that we need to uh, wave a flag or go yeah. to war for king and country or whatever. You know, that to me seemed to be in conflict with what I understood to be a Christian worldview. So, to see someone actually acknowledge that to me was very interesting because, you know, what makes us any better than the people in some other country? And why would uh, a God figure uh, support me versus them when, when we're both, you know, think of World War One for example, both sides praying up to the same God while they slaughter each other by the mm-hmm. millions, you know, mm-hmm. this, that absurdity to me and the fact that they actually acknowledged and grappled with that was very interesting um, in the initial. Studies they claim to be uh, non hierarchical, which clashed with my understanding of how their thing actually works. Because I said, Well, what's an elder or governing body or ministerial servant? You know, that all seems very hierarchical to me. Mm. But when they first said it, <laughs> it was in contrast to perhaps maybe the, the Catholic Church, where you have all of these layers. And yeah, I guess maybe in comparison to that, sure, but. Um, when I started to have these discussions with them of saying, well, what would a witness do in this situation or that situation? And often I got the response of like nothing, we would do nothing. And so for me, that really clashed very heavily with, with my view of the world and my view within the world, you know, to me, an instance of something going wrong is an opportunity for a human to do the right thing, to do something good, to be of service to your neighbor, to love thy neighbor. Um, And so in the American context, you know, we had segregation. And I asked, you know, what would you folks have done during the time Mm. of segregation or slavery? And it was, you know, well, we would just obey the laws at the time and just, uh, you know, have our separate meetings. And as long as we were allowed to pray, we would just go along with it. And to me, like you're allowed to have that perspective but it's not my perspective you know i am not the kind of person that believes that if you are given this profound gift of life if you are given this what's left of this very beautiful biosphere that we have to ignore your responsibility to protect it and foster good in the world in a very practical and physical sense to me is almost spitting in the face of whoever gave you this gift and they didn't they didn't feel that way and you know like i said they're allowed to feel that way. Uh, another example is um, so when I was out in, uh when I was talking to these people, I told them about a story in the Pacific Northwest that was happening at the time. You know, COVID was was very extreme. A lot of people were suffering. Uh, no, uh, most Americans hadn't received any sort of help from their government, and tons of them have been laid off. So there's a lot yeah. of desperation happening. So to me, very real physical problem. And yes, spiritual food is nice, but actual food is also important. So you can yeah. receive this spiritual food, if you so choose. Yeah. And so these folks um, had gone around to this grocery store that had thrown out all of their food because it was cheaper under our system to throw it all away as an insurance write-off than it was to give it out to the community. And so there was a dumpster full of food and people in the community started to try to get it. Uh, then they had called in the local police who formed an armed wall of people around this pile of food. And you know, from an anarchist perspective, that's one of the more Uh, blatant expressions of state power. It's like this stuff is going to rot in the trash. It was thrown out an hour ago and it's winter. You know, what are you doing? You know, we're so um, adherent to these, uh, you know, structural policies that we all live under that we can't take a step back and say, wait, what are what are we doing? Why why are we standing here stopping people that are literally starving from eating? Why are we doing this? And eventually it got to a point where uh, there was a mass arrest threatened. And eventually, once the sun went down, a lot more people came out and the police backed down and people got their food. And so I I opposed the situation then because from my perspective, was saying this is for a greater good of humans eating, uh, which to me seems like a very simple and basic good. But they had said, essentially, that's not their concern. Their concern is their spiritual well-being. And and to me, Mm -hmm. if I'm trying to uh, sway someone to my way of belief, their their physical well-being as being a matter of my concern would be very high up on the list and to me when someone says that's not really our concern it makes me feel like that this person their their concern for me is deeply conditional it's Mm. it's we are we have a concern for you if you agree with all of our sets of beliefs and you know having a little bit of a biblical education when I was younger, I think about stories like the good Samaritan, for example, you know, Indeed. these these were, these were groups that, that hated each other, that shared very little in common, but they still helped each other in a very mm. physical, real way. And, you know, so to, to step away from that sort of made a little bit of, of distance in my head of saying, well, mm. what are these people really enacting? Is this truly an expression uh, of, of something uh, the, the Jesus they speak about would approve of. I mean, to me, this seems mm-hmm. kind of unusual. And, you know, all this sort of non-intervent, non-interventionalist non thinking really clashed very heavily with my perspectives on life. And so I never really, and the fact that I never even felt comfortable saying to them, you know, I I believe in a, a, a political and lifestyle philosophy that uh, espouses direct mutual aid to the people around you in terms of creating a human system of making things better, you know, the fact that I didn't feel comfortable saying that to me was a big red flag of saying, if I would be truly honest with these people about my perspectives, even though we do share some beliefs, that wouldn't be enough, you know, to that to me really clashes with my understanding of what human decency is. And, you know, you hear people talking about, you know, uh, looking forward to this new system of things and that's all fine and good. But part of that new system is the destruction of billions of lives. And to me, that's, that's a horrifying concept, (laughs) but they didn't seem to have that same feeling because they weren't part of this in group. And I really don't like in groups uh, as, as a a, pretty Mm -hmm. much a cornerstone of, of what I believe. And so, you know, we, we reject Mm. nationalism. We're not, we're not big fans of war. You know, we at least claim that we care about people, but when it comes to the real physical, how we interact with the world, that's where things became different. And of course, leaving aside, you know, certain, uh, bigotries and rejections of, uh, LGBTQ groups, that kind of thing, you know, as you can imagine, uh, person of my perspective is, is very radically accepting of other Mm. people and to sure you know, so so that to me was always a little bit of a of a pull. And in one of the meetings, they talked about hating what Jehovah hates. And I'm like, well, mm. hate, that's a little weird for me. I'm not yeah. comfortable with that. You know, I, mm. I think I can see a person that lives differently than me. And as long as they are not harming me or the people I love, I have no problem with it, because I would expect the same respect to be extended to me. Mm. I didn't feel like that was that was their way of uh, of interacting with the world. So I, I still attended uh, meetings through Zoom. Zoom. I still did the studies because I think the Bible is fascinating. I, I think understanding different perspectives is fascinating. But it, the more we talked, the more it seemed like, you know, I would be expected to give up a fundamental part of who I am and how I navigate with the world to have this new personality that wasn't an expression of, of what I believed. And
0: so... Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think, you, you know, you've... Um... You've clearly listened um enough to what's being said at the meetings and in if you had a study to uh to to sort of twig what is actually being said and, and the, the way that they see things. So yeah, I mean as a, an ex-Jehovah's Witness, um I I can I can say that there is um a sort of pacifist philosophy. Um they don't really use that word, but I, I would say that's generally where it comes from and a, and a belief that We shouldn't get involved in politics or in trying to make the world a better place because we just wait, sit back and let uh, let Jehovah do all of that um, through Jesus when he comes and destroys it all, you know, and starts again. But that mentality has been existing for over 100 years now. And, you know, you think that there could have been quite a lot of good could have been done by these people um, over that hundred years or so. Um, And instead, we spent our time knocking on doors and pounding the streets um, and standing while people ignored us, you know. So I think um, I think, you, you know, you make a very, very good point there. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, so, how did you kind of end it with uh, with your study? Did you did you say anything about this stuff, or did you just? Start?
1: I. Yeah. So the way things ended off with us is is actually that that family member uh, left that that marriage and and uh, is is still. I mean, I, I I'm not going to speak to this person's sure. spiritual perspectives, but but has some critiques of this. You know, part of it is saying. You know, I gave my concerns to the elders and didn't feel listened to, and and that to mm-hmm. me was also like, well, you know, that's that that's a red flag to me. And you know, I've also heard plenty of other people that were in the witnesses saying they also didn't feel like they were talking to qualified help, um, and that was that was a yeah. big thing to me. And you know, also just just being in those meetings and like as someone, you, know, you you as well could understand this as well. The the spirit of like academic inquiry, like what is research? Um, so yes. so to me, my, my first meeting. I'm in there, I'm sitting, I'm I'm looking at the the book on my phone, and they're saying, well, what do you believe about this? And they would read back the exact words given to them, and and they're like, you know, oh, well-reasoned, well-researched. And I'm like, this doesn't make sense to me. You know, I'm not the most well-read person on earth, but I happen to have some understanding of what it means to do research.
0: Yeah, (laughs) it's... (laughs) <laughs> it's a rehashing of what so, so it, actually what you're seeing there is is something that looks um and sounds a bit like study um sounds a bit like education but actually isn't it's a it's an indoctrination process yeah. that is yeah. um is being um experienced there and yeah if you um if you want to find out more details then again you're you're only really supposed to go To more of the same sorts of books you you shouldn't really be looking outside of that so um yeah it's not um it's not for somebody who's got a keen inquiring mind let's let's put it that way
1: yeah you know and one of the things that really (laughs) stuck out to me is is there i don't remember exactly where it is because i'm not the best bible scholar but there's somewhere in it that it says this is the only book you need and then I was seeing all of this, you know, mm. all these publications going, you know, because I, I spent a lot of time on JW.org, really like looking at what these people believe, because I'm like, yeah, this is a belief system, I'm going to give it a, a serious inquiry, serious chance to actually see what they're saying. And I'm thinking like, this is a lot of stuff written down to describe a book that claims it's the only thing that I need. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: but yeah, I mean, so once that once that family uh, sort of separated, that certainly had a certain um awkwardness around continuing study and so it, it just it never picked up from there um and so that's where yeah,
0: that, it ended. i think jehovah's witnesses are like a lot of these groups um i mean you may or may not be comfortable calling these groups a cult but and um, they have a, an authoritarian um so actually quite opposite to your philosophy they um, <laughs> sure they um they, they 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 want to separate from nation states or at least they they want to have a they have a relative uh, position in relation to the nation states, so they'll obey the obey man's law so long as it doesn't uh, interfere with God's law. Is, is the general um, line there? But um, but actually, when it comes to sort of authority in terms of who tells you what to do, who tells you what to believe, who tells you what to think, and then where to go. So the other sense of authority, which we discussed, was you know where do you go to to find out um good information and um credible information and so on and again, and again that all goes through the organization so it's very centralized very authoritarian in many ways so yeah you i i guess you were never going to um uh be aligned with that sort of thing really uh yeah i'm not, not a losing wicket with you i think yeah.
1: It, it, you know, it, it wasn't, um, it wasn't going to be anything that I would ever feel, feel comfortable in. And mm. part of how I learned that was by actually like giving this thing, you know, a serious, a serious, interesting. A serious yeah. look. And, you know, cause mm. I, I, I'm, I'm of the perspective that like, I could always be wrong. And so whenever I have any sort of perspective, I'm always trying to shoot down my own perspective because I think that's, I, I'm more interested in being correct than I am being, uh, feeling like I'm correct.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. you know,
1: even in in the terms of studying, I did a little bit of a no-no of like looking at the other side, you know, mm-hmm. so I found podcasts like yours and other ones. And I'm like, this is another side to this story. And like, before I made any sort of decisions, I want to hear everyone out. And the fact that that was so discouraged, like I heard in the meetings, like never touch apostate material, yes. spiritually poisoned. And I'm like, yeah. you know, and I look around, I'm like, these are all to me at least, such kind people. But like, and I would be friends with any of these people unless Absolutely. I found reason to be otherwise. But I don't feel like they would be friends with me. And yeah. that to me was sad. You know, that's, that's, that's not my <laughs> that's not my perspective in life. I seek friendship with just about anyone that I can. Like, as, as you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a very open anarchist, but I have a ton of friends that are part of the local right-wing media. It's not my perspective, but like sure. I talk to them. And we, we find this, Shared humanity, right? Maybe we don't agree on everything, but maybe we all agree that like planting fruit trees is a good idea because we all need to eat. Like mm. we can, to me at least, that gives us a world where maybe we can uh, spend a little bit less time murdering each other. At least like try. Um, be nice, mm.
0: <laughs> right? You know,
1: <laughs> I, I I disagree with tons of people, but I have mm. friends that are in groups I disagree with, and as long as we're not attacking each other or maybe uh, attacking groups that are out of each other's mutual sight that to me is is, is a, a potential for a better world you know maybe the the anarchists go live and do their thing over here and the, the uh, you know democrats republicans go do their things to me that's more of a mutually respectful relationship and yeah it's obviously a pie in the sky type of dream but it's something at least to to aim for because if you shoot for the stars you might at least hit the moon like
0: <laughs> yeah that's nice um, okay let's um so uh, what i'd like to do if that's all right hayward is to um kind of prod you a little bit on some of the things that you said at the beginning and some of my questions that i've got around this uh this philosophy i suppose um as a skeptic um mm-hmm. i guess and somebody who um i mean i think we we were probably quite uh, reasonably clear on 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 our podcast around authority that i guess we we sit more in the um well, I won't speak for celine but i think she she sort of um, said something similar but we i kind of sit in the um am i not like a lot of what the government does and um i also think that the world um it we you don't need to believe in conspiracy theories to know that the power within um certainly well pretty much all the nation states that i know are controlled by a few people with um money power this is open this is not um in secret ways this is just the fact that most of prime most of the prime ministers in in the uk have been to private school and have uh, attended eton or then oxford and cambridge university um why is that considering it's a very small um, part of the actual population, but they seem to have all the power. Of course, we have a royal family as well, um, yeah, yeah. Who um, yeah, technically don't have power, but um, still, um, there is some of that there. So, yeah, um, I guess. So, I, I guess I'm hedging quite a lot there, but I suppose I would say that my my problem with a purely anarchist um, type, as you've described it type of outlook would be what protects those communities from so in a way you can go back a few thousand years to a period where we we probably did have those village um arrangements or very small localized ways of organizing ourselves but then of course you get one village that decides they want what the other village has got and Mm. then you have a sort of feudalistic system with powerful uh, people with a bit better spears and so on. Um, You know, in the modern world, we we might call them warlords and so on. So you you tend to have these groups that maybe manage to exercise power over others in a much more disorganized way and without any accountability. So how do you avoid that if you have a, a purely anarchist system?
1: Yeah, it's, it's one of the biggest weaknesses of this whole perspective is you, how do you prevent yourself from getting annihilated by your much larger neighbor? And that's that's a very serious dilemma. So if you think about all of the, uh, we often call them autonomous zones that have existed throughout, uh, throughout anarchist history, is almost all of them have been destroyed by a much larger government. And part of that is because it's a very terrifying concept to governments that people might actually be able to figure something out themselves. And- to me, at least, the um, the weakness of, of defense doesn't completely draw me away from the interest in a society where people often had much higher morale, much higher living standard, much higher daily freedom. You know, to me, even if you're trying for that, you might end up somewhere close. You have a concept of anarchism versus minarchism, where you know you have some uh, hierarchy wherever possible, and if you end up halfway there, chances are you might be a lot happier than you are in a much more top-down situation. Most anarchists are very comfortable with the concept of defensive force. So you've seen all throughout history anarchists using force in various ways to try to defend the spaces that from their perspective, they've liberated. And I say from their perspective, because that's Mm. their belief, right? You know, uh, the government may feel a different way, or the local townspeople might feel a different way. But from their perspective, they feel they've liberated this space from state control and they try their best to defend it and i've lived in a few places that have done a pretty decent job at defending it but they always live under that perpetual threat and yet people still go to them and say you know i might get uh, you know annihilated by this these forces tomorrow but bef- until that day comes i've lived a totally different way of life that i never would have had the opportunity to live otherwise and maybe that doesn't appeal to you or your neighbor or whoever But you had that opportunity to actually live out something that you like. And and even the chance at having something for a lot of people is a hope worth going for, because they feel like going on with things as they are, uh, participating in a society that is bathed in blood and violence just for existing. And we don't often see it because it happens far away. To them, that's a, a preferable alternative to at least have a chance rather than live a life that is inauthentic to them. And that's obviously not a satisfying answer for how do you defend these things? The only answer is the best that you can. And sometimes you'll win and sometimes you'll lose. And some people take the very sober analysis of saying, I'll take those odds rather than continuing to go do what they're doing now. And maybe it's maybe it's a doomed endeavor, but some people would prefer a doomed endeavor that they want to fight for than living in a world that they hate.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. I, I guess I was thinking more... Um so not so much in terms of uh anarchy state within a state, if you like, or not a mm-hmm. not a, a system within a system, but more if we go back to a period when um I mean in, in the British Isles, for instance, you know, that there was quite a long period where there were I local um chieftains, if you like, and um mm-hmm. you, you if you turn the clock back you'll get to a point where the whole land mass was just little settlements here and little settlements there. And I guess those existed for as long as they were either away from the eyes of, of somebody that liked that land mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and or were perhaps um, bigger than the, the neighbour or could protect themselves or the cost was too great. But but you it feels like it's almost inexorable this, this movement. As you get more communities closer together, you you have almost an inevitable situation where you have to think about protecting that. And then mm-hmm. then what you have is a, a, a might is right sort of situation where whoever happens to have the strongest armies, um, is able to protect, and then they might go off and and uh, grab this other bit of land and so on. And that's of course where we end up with countries, nation states, and so on. Um, yeah. W- when you get to that point, I guess you then you then look to these authorities to protect people's rights and um, abilities to live their lives as they would like to. And so mm-hmm. that's that's what these governments should be doing, and I guess we could argue whether they do or not. And I think there's lots of reasons why we might say they don't, um, mm-hmm. and we'd probably disagree on some of those areas. But I think I would like I like the fact that there is protection from a mm-hmm. law enforcement agency, as bad as it is at times, and we've had some really terrible issues with the metropolitan police which is the london police force um which has responsibility for the roads as well and um, however would i rather live in a world where there is no police force to protect people and uh, i then basically have to get my own weapons and uh, so i don't i don't want to do that i don't like the sound of that um i, I don't know what what your reaction to that is
1: well, I, I lost you for just a second there, but I think I got most of okay. it. So, uh, you know, okay. a big part of, of anarchist thinking is not necessarily, although some do, looking back toward that tribal past as something to emulate. Other people have the perspective of, we maybe have uh, developed a lot as a species and maybe the calculation is, is different when you turn more locally. And obviously there is always the, the omnipresent nature of state power that may just decide to, to get rid of you. But, you know, you, you talk about these sort of inexorable march of what some people call progress of this, this accumulation of state power into these large, uh, these, these large units of force that can protect as well as they can remove that protection if they so choose. And, and maybe that is inevitable, but death is also inevitable. That doesn't mean we just lay down and <laughs> stop fighting. So, you know, there's um, and that's what I touched on before of like, you know, maybe this struggle mm. is doomed, but, doom is the default. So for us, you know, even trying for it is worth doing. And you, uh, you bring up, of course, um, uh, policing power is very much a double edged sword because you want in an organized society and an organized society is not necessarily uh, antithetical to an anarchist society. It's just it's a different organization. Having some kind of a specialist role that is tasked with dispute resolution and uh, public safety makes sense. When you have a society that goes beyond our natural ability to have meaningful relationships, which last I checked, most people think is around 200 or so. It's real easy to overshoot that number pretty quickly. So you need some kind of a system in order to make sure you can make up for that lack of us to have meaningful relationships with, for example, 2000, 3000, 4000. However, how those specialists in most Western countries, the police are used is it's that but it is also the direct repressive arm of the state if people decide they want something different so in the american context for example in the american south the policing rose from slave patrols who were tasked with upholding the social order of the day which is putting down slave revolts and bringing back runaway slaves and you can see how as the the relationship with slavery changed those same roles continue there are police departments all throughout the american south that still have the same badges that they did when they were slave mm. patrols sure. in the american north uh the police first police department was in boston and then, uh the, the, the local factory owners had decided we need to figure out a way to make a cost putting the striking workers at bay so we can keep crushing them at our will and so they said well let's make the public pay for it and call it the police and that's how we get the boston police as the first northern police force and you had call boxes all throughout the city of boston that you could call for police support, but the only people that got those keys were business owners. So there's there's this mm-hmm. darker history that is still a part of policing as it exists. And so do I oppose the, the, the specialist role of someone saying, hey, uh, my house has been broken into, please help me, please uh, submit paperwork in such a way that I can... Try to have be made whole in some way. That is an, a, a natural and and human response to the diversity of the human experience. Things go wrong. Let's figure out a support mechanism for dealing with that. Does that role also have to be the role that says I'm not being paid enough? I you know I don't feel like going to work, and I'm going to say all of the people around me don't feel like going to work as well. Are the people that then show up with tear gas are the same people that are supposed to protect you? So when the rubber really meets the road, it seems like the original and in in my perspective, true purpose of modern policing comes out. Like I've, I mentioned earlier the the permanent injuries thing. So like I've been in instances where people were protesting police violence happening and their response was tear gas, uh, concussion grenades, rubber bullets, uh, beanbag rounds, fired from 12 gauge shotguns, you know, this type of force that's being applied when you question that system. And so Being subjected to that, you know, seeing the the blood in the streets, the the violence with this role of policing. And I'm not saying you're completely comfortable, I'm just describing, you know, how that change happened for me, of of seeing the sort of mask-off expression of state power. And then to have lived in places that actually threw off that power and managed to hold their territories to me were very interesting. It gave the, the idea of saying, A different world is possible, and it might be extremely hard and you might suffer a lot, but at least you're moving in a direction that actually is consistent with your values. And some people will take that risk. People take it all the time when they challenge state power, saying this uh, revolution, this uprising is going to be hard and I might not even survive, but the alternative is unacceptable. And, you know, that's what a lot of people feel. And that's just their perspective.
0: Yeah, sure. I I, I guess um, it sounds, I suppose the way I would argue that or approach that is to say, it, it sounds though like actually what's wrong is not the concept. And, and, and in a way, you've agreed with this, that in the con- the concept itself of a, call them what you like, a specialist force to protect and serve, I guess, um, as is the apparent mission. So here's here's the ideal, and I know this is far from what happens, but In an ideal democratic society, the government is truly accountable to the people. The government are responsible for things that can be done more effectively and better through a a kind of coming together of pooling of resources and of being able to do things in a more coordinated way. That includes things like... um, policing in the uk that actually includes things like the health service as well so we have a national health service um in a society where the government is truly accountable at the correct level which probably should be a much more localized level but in a society where that is 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 seen that the government is seen as accountable and they are genuinely trying to serve the people and know that they must do so um in a way that. Is for all of the people not just for a select few then institutions like the police force know what they're there for they are there to protect properly protect everyone Mm -hmm. in society they are not there to wield the power of the state they are there to facilitate the living of of everyday people like you and me and i think that is clearly not happening in in many places Mm -hmm. um I, i think that there is a cultural difference between the the states and yep. and the uk in our perception of of the police that's not to say as i said that we don't have problems here but mm-hmm. the police are seen that this the police in the uk come from the bobby on the beat as they used to call mm-hmm. it you know and that's a very different image to slave owners trying to protect their um well what could you say their their way of life if you like um so I think that there is some difference in history there. That's not to say that that there hasn't been as I say some abuses and and continues to be some. So I suppose what I'm saying is it's it would be throwing out the baby with the bathwater to say actually, what we don't want is government um to manage this stuff for us let's let's look at a more risky system of of localised people getting on with their own thing, doing what they're doing, because we know that's going to end at some point in uh, warlords and people invading each other. Whereas with a government, we, in theory, it should be that we could have a proper democratic government that is accountable to the people. So, yeah, I, I guess, how would you respond yeah. to that,
1: Yeah, you know, it's to talk about this and you you were very smart to mention in theory this is a this is a great thing and sure. and from my perspective it almost seems not quite as unrealistic necessarily but in the same realm of unrealistic to expect this system to do that as it is to expect a complete alternative To come up with something else because we don't have either right now. I mean, again, I don't live in the UK, so I can't speak to your perspective and your experiences. Mm -hmm. But in America, yes, we have some things we get for our tax dollars, and I'm of the perspective where some of those things, in fact, many of those things, can be replicated through sort of a more local organizing. And when you talk about the the these specialists and these organizations, when you bring things, like you said, maybe it becomes more local because in a country as large as ours, for example, the, the local cultural differences can be extreme. I mean, I, oh, yeah. I even know in the UK, you have different chunks of the UK that are very different. So maybe mm-hmm. it makes sense for those different cultures to to organize in ways that are more convenient, uh, consistent with their perspectives and their values. Because I think it's just as important that the rural areas in, in the American context, be able to pursue their values as the urban areas are to theirs. And the more you centralize, the more that becomes harder to do. And the more you bring things locally, the closer to a non-hierarchical system you end up with. And maybe you don't end up with a fully non-hierarchical system. Maybe you end up somewhere along, along that spectrum and maybe that works for you. And the cool thing about saying these folks in their own areas should be able to determine the conditions of their lives, from my perspective, a, a, a fundamental of their human rights to do so, that kind of thing becomes more possible when you bring things more local. And it's not to say that every area has to go full in this direction. My contention is that people should at least experiment over the continuum as a capital in a capitalist way of wealth, at a that an anarchist perspective might say it's fundamentally incompatible. And to pretend that you can't, uh, that, that you can have, in the presence of these oligarchs, you can have something representative. To me, is is is. Uh, just as naive from my perspective as saying, oh, I could live free. That to me is also a naive perspective, but it's one that I shoot for because it's one that I believe I want to live within. And so think about the Norfolk Southern thing that just happened. So this, uh, for those that don't know, in the American state of Ohio, a train, uh, the the company that uh, was running, it was called Norfolk Southern. They were holding um, a bunch of volatile chemicals that were used to make uh, polyvinyl chloride plastic and it run off it ran off the track uh, at least currently they think because a wheel bearing exploded and the whole thing burned up and poisoned a whole town and that happened weeks after the workers at that same company were saying safety standards are getting laxed in the name of corporate profits do something we're going to strike about it and the Biden administration forced the workers to go back to work through a deal that wouldn't help them get sick leave and a bunch of other things that might actually help make things safer. And a few years prior, I think it was under the Trump administration, they turned down a law to uh, require safer brakes on these wheels. So in a system where wealth equals power and you have a democratic system, how do you not lose that immediately to an oligarchy when those things occur? And so to me, a system where that is much harder to even achieve versus extremely easy to achieve might hold at least part of the solution toward a more dignified human experience. Because right now, you know, these companies will just destroy us and pay the inconvenience fee that's built into their very business model. And the, the same thing of the inconvenience fee of destroying towns with poison gas is saying, I'm gonna spend a bunch of money taking out these congressmen to lunch. And so with this factor of corruption, with this understanding of the state as it exists, as always being a tool of the powerful to maintain their flows of profit and control, how do you uh, say that this will not always end up that way? Maybe, Maybe there's something we can come up with that will make that happen. But to me, it is more realistic to say, this whole mechanism is structured by those in power to maintain that power that they have. And so, you know, there's a, there's a, an American quote that goes something to the effect of, the master's house cannot be taken down with his own tools. You know, we can go for reform, but all of that reform happens within a pre-approved box. And who gets to determine the conditions of that box? In theory, the people, but in practice, it doesn't seem that that's the case. And so rather than wasting what might be our finite time trying to make this thing change, trying to right the ship, does it make more sense to get in a lifeboat and get off the ship and start to figure out an alternative and then say to other people, I figured out an alternative. Maybe you like this. Maybe you like some variation of this. But at least you might have a chance at something different. Because I'm a person that believes that you know we are doing a lot of very bad things to our environment that our attempts at reform are doing very little to save. And so there's a certain uh, finite nature to that timing, in addition to the finite nature of my life itself. So to do what to me seems like a a waste of time and trying to make what is, from my perspective, an unsalvageable tool of control into a tool of liberation seems like uh, a losing proposition. If you go back in in, in, uh, the history of the left, you have a split between the folks that followed Marx and the folks that followed anarchism, and the Marxists believe that you you can use state power, seize state power as a tool of the liberation of the people, and the anarchists said state power is a tool of the elite, and if you occupy that same position, you are very unlikely to be able to separate from that. You might just create a bureaucracy more of your liking that will just pummel the people you don't like instead of pummeling you. And, you know, people have been having this debate for 200 years now, but that's that's a rub that exists within the anarchist relationship to state power. It's a deep skepticism of whether or not this project, as it exists, can be saved. Does it make more sense to throw out the baby with the bathwater? And if the answer is yes, then you better start figuring out immediately parallel systems, which is a big part of anarchist activism, is building parallel systems of support because no one... I shouldn't say no one few people want to just pull everything down and say, all right, well, now we have nothing. Yeah. We uh, want to figure out something else.
0: Yeah. I, I, that's, that's very interesting. And, um, I, I suppose we've got, we've sort of got 10 minutes left. Um, we, I sort of promised you we'd, we'd uh, stick to an hour. So, um, I suppose my last um, point then would be, I guess one that is in line with, I I guess you've you've heard Stephen Pinker and read read his books about the quality of life that we now have compared to what we had. If you go back to a more feudalist society or before that, when we were living in crofts and so on, um, you know, the question would be. I guess sometimes I'm I'm as guilty as anybody of doing this, you know, looking at the world in despair and thinking, you know, the powerful have all the power. They, the, the discrepancy between the rich and the poor is massive. How could we have a better democracy? How can people have more faith in politics and in politicians and so on and so on? But sometimes it's easy for us to forget that our system, as bad as it is in the West, um is actually still delivering or has delivered over the last hundred years or so, higher living standards, uh, better health than we've ever had. You know, we live longer than we've ever lived. We are unlikely to be, um, although despite what we hear on the news, we're unlikely to be murdered. We're unlikely to be a victim of some gross crime. And we actually live quite privileged lives compared to what we did going back to those times so um, I think it'd be it's wrong to imagine that we are living in a terrible time it could be a lot better would be my I suppose my thinking on that mm-hmm.
1: yeah and, and you know you talk about uh, going back to this other time mm-hmm. and you know again that's something some people aspire to other people aspire yeah. for simply a different forward sure. um, and, and they don't see hope in this current trajectory and you know that's to me that that's a very big way of, of approaching this whole thing, of, of building a, a different tomorrow and, and trying for it. And, you know, you talk about uh, that we've, we've lived longer and, and that's, of course, true. We live longer to do what? We live longer to spend more money, spend more time at work, make more money for corporations. You know, yes, we yeah. live longer, but what is the quality of life? And, you know, you might be able to research this better than I could, but a lot of people have been saying that things like mental illness and depression have been rising. Why is that? Is that because our life is getting more depressing and more controlled? And yes, we have funny magic boxes to distract ourselves from, from the suffering, but on the subject of that funny magic box that we have, who built that, you know, were those people that in, in, in factories that have suicide nets around them that go blind from benzene exposure, soldering those boards together, or the people that mine the rare earth minerals for those, you know, you and I live in what a lot of people refer to as the imperial core, right? The UK and the US, these are, these are powerful countries that have for a very long time enjoyed that privileged position. And a big part of the anarchist critique of this society is whose bones is that privilege built upon? So, you know, we can say, yes, we have all of these great things or we have all of this, this oil or, or all of these resources. Where do we get them from? Whose rights were destroyed through the natural function of this system in order to build all rights. Uh, you can look at the um, the Nordic social democracies, for example, where they have a lot of welfare protections, but they also for quite some time had a huge colonial empire through which they were extracting that value to create that, that for their own in crowd. And it's hard not to see that same dynamic on a global scale if we're very near the top of it and we might be more susceptible to saying well you know this system is bad but it's pretty okay we might be more susceptible to that perspective mm-hmm. than people that are doing the mining for example and and to me it's important to focus on that because you know uh maybe again coming from my little bit of uh you know christian uh upbringing when i was a kid you know doing the least of these is what you do for me, you know, the least of these to me in a global perspective is the people that are at the very bottom of the system, the people that are over in other countries, because we can't get away with doing that here anymore, because we had the labor movement, for example. So we just shifted the suffering further and further out of sight. And so just because we are not suffering to that extreme, is that progress in a global sense? Or is that just progress for us on the backs of others. And if the answer, which you're allowed to have whatever answer you want, if your answer is this this progress was built on the backs of others, is it worth it? Or who am I to determine if it's worth it? To me, it's probably more to the person that's actually doing that suffering on whether or not it's worth it, because they have every bit as much human worth as I do. You know, who am I by accident of birth to say my brand new car or brand new iPhone or whatever is worth all of that inbuilt suffering and to to follow that rabbit hole of saying, well, is this worth it? Is this worth it? Is this worth it? You might determine that there's so much blood and suffering in our current societal construction that it doesn't even make sense to continue. And that's an opinion But that's Mm -hmm. sort of where I arrived at it. There's just so much violence and blood and suffering. And just because I can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. And once I became aware of it, it became very hard to be comfortable continuing in this society as it wants me to.
0: Yeah, I think that the way you put that, I don't think anybody would say I'm OK with uh, with right, my exactly. Apple iPhone um, <laughs> uh, on the backs of, of suffering. Yeah. And um, I, I guess that's that's a really good place to uh, to leave hanging there for us all to uh, to sort of think about as we go about our day. Um, Heywood, thank you so much for coming on the the podcast. This will be um, a bonus episode. I think it's um, it's a bit parallel to our normal um topic and we've got into politics in a much more uh deep way than we would normally but um, i've really enjoyed our conversation today so thank you so much uh for reaching out and thanks for coming on the podcast today hey, would Gatch.
1: really appreciate your time thank you so much